This is Jimmy Faye, Channel 5 Stone Jive, the all-black station for all black people with all the news that grooves at noon, live from Oakland, California. <laughs> As you are probably aware, several local mystics have predicted a landing from space this afternoon here at this spot opposite the Sector 5 government building in the person of a black musician and thinker named Sun Ra. I haven't seen him yet. He should be here any time now. He's reported to have disappeared while traveling in Europe in June 1969. He's reputed to have been traveling in outer space all this time with his intergalactic mid-science solar orchestra. And upon landing here, will reveal to the world his so-called plan for the salvation of the black race. Where the hell is he? It is now a couple of minutes past the time when Mr. Ra is scheduled to appear, so apparently he's not quite as efficient as our own NASA program people. <laughs> We are the wretched refuse. We're underdogs. We're mutts. We're mutants. There's something wrong with us. Something very, very wrong with us. Something seriously wrong with us. Mm. So, welcome back, everybody. Um, Lobo is with us now, but his computer died. Probably Ugh. what forty five minutes before the show, an hour before no, the show, it something was, like that. When I texted you, I had, I had exactly four hours to be able to get it up and running, and it took five and a half to get it to somewhere that looked resembling a laptop again. So your hard drive died for the most part. No, well, what happened was or? zero sector was gone on it, so you, I had to rewrite it. I don't so, know what that is, but okay. <laughs> it had to be rewritten. I had to go through the, the four recovery disks, then I had to go through Microsoft, and then when they set up a Microsoft account now because it's stupid, it asks for a backup, and then when you put the backup email in, it turned that backup email into my primary email address. Oh, yeah. And I no longer have access to that email address, yeah. so I had to go back through, and every time I clicked on it to be able to delete it, it told me that the page was no longer available. I'm at, in the exact same boat. Yeah, I at can't. Twelve forty-five uh, last night or this morning, I finally got Skype working underneath my original uh, name and profile, or else I would have had to go through the other one that I had set up years ago that doesn't have a subscription paid on it. Oh my god! I had to uh, redo my profile on Microsoft six times, and then I had to re-image the machine again. Dude, I was done. I was I was gonna throw this out the window. Well, like I told you beforehand, I was is like if you you know just do what you got to do. I wasn't real worried about it. So, but okay. Well, this week's show we interview Adam Gorightly and Greg Bishop about their book A is for Adamski, and they pull the full thing up here. Uh, A is for Adamski. The goal is for Adamski. Ah, let's try this again. A is for Adamski. The golden age of UFO contactees. Um, Greg uh, and and Adam have been working on this for, I don't know, months now. And me and Adam have been talking behind the scenes and he sent me a copy of it. And I, you know, I've been reviewing it and I sent you a copy and then mm -hmm. you were like, well, I can't make it on the show. So I was like, 
shit. So I scrambled as quick as I could, and I bugged a couple of people. I originally bugged Josh. I'm like, hey, come on. It'd be, I figured that'd be okay. Well, you're not here. Getting Josh on here, the four of us would be pretty cool. Cutchin was busy, and I was like, shit. Well, Josh knows these these guys. They're all we all run in the same circles. We're all friends. This would be really cool. Josh couldn't make it. Bugged Patrick over at Patrick and Dennis from Almost Educational. He couldn't make it. And then at the last zero hour, Joe from Ozone Nightmare was like, yeah, sure. If you need somebody to sit in, which is funny because. I'll talk about it later, but Joe was like, yeah, I'll do it. So Joe shows up at the very last second. I'm like, here's a copy of the book. I don't think they're going to mind that you're getting it because we're getting ready to go live. And Joe probably had maybe 10 minutes to thumb through the book or whatever um, through PDF. And and then we just hit record and we ran with it and it turned into a two hour show. So this is going to be a two part episode. Uh, There's this one and then we're going to drop another one next week, which I'm probably just going to record a real short intro and outro for it. So you'll hear this week's and then next week's. But since you, Lobo, haven't heard any of this yet. <laughs> We're just going to run the first part of the interview, and then we end it. Uh, we end up co- talking about Philip K. Dick at the very end of it and about how he got hit by the pink laser for Philip K. Dick fans. Um, he gets hit by this pink laser, and all this information is downloaded. Him, and then we get into this debate of, well, could he be considered a contactee at some point or other? So we cut it off there because at that point we were all like, all right, we need to stand up, take a break, go to the bathroom, get something to drink. And I was like, all right, we'll just end this first section and then we'll pick up the following week from where we left off. So let's run the interview right now. And then afterwards, uh, we'll at least talk about your MRE pizza that somebody sent you. Yes. So I guess you'll maybe you'll listen to it during the week or something like that and we'll talk about it later or whatever but for everybody yeah, else sure. we'll see everybody at the other side why now why have they chosen you as shall we say contact man they haven't really chosen me i think it was an accident i haven't been in the right place at the right spot that's all the right time but uh, they have chosen others since they have chosen me and some even before myself all right, tonight I am joined by guest co-host Joe from Ozone Nightmare. Say hi, Joe. Hello. And hi, I've Joe. got... That's a terrible hello. Hello. Uh, off to a great start. And we've also got with us Adam Gorightly, who has frequently been on the show, and Greg Bishop. Um, and you guys got together in probably one of the coolest writing compilations I can think of, and you guys did A for Adamski, which is a coffee table book about... UFO abductees, the early golden age era of UFO abductees, which is not the uh, I was captured and anally probed by gray aliens. This is hot Venusians. The fun. This this is the time when UFO contactees were fun and it was it was quirky and interesting to read. And you kind of got a little chuckle out of some of this stuff. So um, you guys have known each other for a while. I've heard you on. I've heard Adam on Greg, your show, Radio Mysterio. So um how did you guys come together and decide to do this? Adam started um, it. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's been a few years, too. Uh, I'm thinking... And it's contactees. Abductees and contactees, to my mind, are different different animals. Yes, correct. Thank yeah. you for fixing that, yes. Sorry, go ahead, Adam. Delineate it. Um, with this uh, project, I had a... Uh, man, this is going back to 2011, 2010. I had a friend of mine who teamed up with this guy named Joe Fex who uh, Joe Fex is a uh, photograph collector and he buys collections UFOs in particularly paranormal stuff restores them and anyway this buddy of mine Jim said told Joe at that 
I'll be, you know, prior to all this, hey, you ought to put out a book. And they did this uh, volume on uh, Lulu that was just some of the photos that we're talking about here. And nobody really saw the book. I'm probably the only one I heard about it and bought it. And I started talking with Jim and Joe, you know, maybe we should do or somebody should do more with these photos, you know, and I started having the uh, concept of like a who's who thing. There was like half of the photos. I recognized a lot of these people and half of them I didn't. And so I approached uh, effects about uh, acquiring or using the uh, photos. That was around 2011 and showed them to Greg at one point and, uh, Greg knows a lot about the history of the contactee contactees. I think he kind of turned me on to them to a certain uh, uh, degree back in the day. Anyway, I uh, put forth the idea to Greg, and he thought it sounded good. And uh, here we are. It's uh, 2019. <laughs> Finally completed it after uh, all those years. Now, and ask you guys both up front, I pretty much know where you both are coming from, but so when people hear this, how much of a believer in these people are you guys? Or, I mean, where do you stand on this? Is this just something you did for shits and giggles, or do you think there's something to any of these people? How much do I believe in these people? I believe they were people, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Greg? That's, as good, that's as good answer, answer is any, Craig. <laughs> I I answered your question literally, so I could get out of it. Uh, Greg answer. <laughs> well, uh, I I believe almost all of them. Oh, I don't know. I believe a great majority of them believe what they were saying. Okay. Um, way in the back of their minds, they might not have. And then there's a few who I believe are like right down the middle. It's like this happened to me absolutely. Um, as real as can be, and um, there's only a few like that. Like I, the only one I could like kind of pull out of my hat right now would be Orfeo Angelucci. Um, but to me, there, it's the same reason you know I would like you know dumb country music or well even early country music. Anything that is just homegrown, um, honest as can be, at least you know in the in the way that it's try they try to present it. Um, that kind of stuff appeals to me, and the the um the fact that they were kind of like a 20th century religion that uh was developing at the time i was it was a mythology and a religion and everything going on at the same time um uh was exciting i mean i wish i wish i could have been around when that stuff was happening just to see it there's a there's a picture of um now i can't remember the name of the uh ufo researcher uh uh uh, uh oh god Condon was it? Was it uh, Edward Condon? Maybe the head of the Condon committee. There's a picture of him at one of the giant rock conventions. Mm -hmm. So apparently he was into the he was into the contactee thing. I mean, he probably didn't believe a word of it, but he, it was just fascinating. It fascinated him. There was a lot of people at one time or another that have been at Giant Rock. I know that's that's the home of the Integratron. Am I right? Or is yeah, that, it's near there. Yeah. So that that place is kind of for its in its time it was kind of the epicenter for all these people to meet in one way or another or it, you know the, the people that all traveled in the same circles kind of around that area and essentially it's just a giant rock out in the middle of nowhere and then you've got the integratron well you know what Descri you've been there a couple of times so describe the integratron 
Uh, I've been going there since the late 80s, I think, or the mid 80s, mm-hmm. when I first started getting into UFO stuff again after not being into it for a while. When I was a kid, um, I was into it. Then like teenager, college, I wasn't. Then after that, it's like, oh, this is interesting again. Um, so I traveled out there. Uh, it's about hour and a half, two hours west, yeah, sorry, east of Los Angeles. So um, the uh, Giant Rock was the reason that George Van Tassel got out there, the, the contactee we're talking about, um, was that he was working in a gas station in Santa Monica. Um, and this guy, Frank Kreitzer, uh, was, uh, his, I guess he was in town for some reason or other. His car broke down. He was a prospector, lived out in the desert there. And, um, he, uh, he, uh, he got friendly with, uh, he got friendly with Van Tassel and said, Hey, why don't you come out and visit? And he did. And Van Tassel loved the desert. At the time Van Tassel was, uh, working at that gas station, but he had been working apparently, uh, for Hughes aircraft, uh, for Howard Hughes. Uh, at least that's the legend. And, um, when he uh, he went out to visit uh, Kreitzer over over the years, uh, Kreitzer eventually was uh, was uh, under investigation by the local authorities because he was German, and uh, there was there was some suspicion about him, you know, using his radio equipment to contact Nazis or something like that during World War II. Um, so when they came out to serve him with a warrant or at least question him, um, you know, he's he's a guy that lives out in the, and he wasn't a hermit. He was very friendly. People's like, oh, he's this hermit out there. He didn't talk to anybody. No, he was pretty well known in the community. Um, but they wanted to question him. He didn't like the authorities, apparently. And uh, when they tried to capture him, um, uh, he uh, somehow the dynamite he used as as, as a prospector was uh, ignited and it blew up and killed him. Um, so Van Tassel, uh, soon after that, Van Tassel moved out there. Um, Kreitzer had built a house underneath Giant Rock, um, which is apparently one, either the world's or one of the world's biggest freestanding boulders, uh, granite boulders. Um, he moved out there with his wife and his uh, two daughters and uh, eventually said he started channeling aliens. Also, yeah, he had kind of a dude ranch airport place where uh, pilots could stop off because he was a pilot. He was a licensed pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, his, and they had a cafe out there called the Come On In. Um and his wife made burgers and pies out there, and apparently those were famous. And so, people started coming out. And then, uh, sometime what what year was that, uh, Adam, where he started channeling Solganda, the the alien? Uh, he said it was 1952 or uh, 53. Then I believe 1956 was the first uh, Giant Rock Interplanetary Spacecraft Convention. Yeah. Um, and it became the biggest one. I mean, uh, uh, it became like, as you said, you know, the the place for all the contactees to meet up and talk because they all did. They all, as uh, Tim Beckley mentioned to us, they all did the uh, the uh, train circuit or whatever, where they <laughs> they just got on trains and buses and went from city to city doing their lectures and trying to sell their books and all that. But once a year, from 1956. Six. Yep. Yeah, to 77 or 78, um, uh, everybody, uh, all the contactees, as many as there were, as many that's, uh, that could make it out there, um, would come out to Giant Rock, California, near Joshua Tree there, and they'd 
um, at I think at its peak they had like eight or ten thousand people out there. It was like it was like the um, Burning Man of the time almost. So, uh, what was ahead. the Integratron then? Was that like this supposed to be this? Like we've never really covered it on the show for the most part. So, you know, if, if you could give us the dime store tour of what the Integratron is or was. Uh, it is still there. It's owned by uh, two sisters, Nancy and Joanne Carl, who's, who um, are still out there, still own it, and will let you go in there um, uh, for something they call sound baths, where they play Tibetan uh, 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 musical bowls and let you relax. They're, they're, they're great people. I've known them since uh, for a long time. So, um, But uh, the Integratron was built by Van Tassel, on, um, he said, uh, instructions from the Space Brothers, who said, um, if you build this thing, what will happen is uh, it, it is a it is, it's an electrostatic generator that apparently is supposed to get uh, make people live longer or immortal or something like that. Um, it's supposed to make you younger or stop the aging process when it yeah. works. He never yeah. he never actually got it working. By the, by the time he died, it was probably it was probably like something like 80, 90% finished when he died, but nobody ever got it running. Um, and so it looks like a building. It looks like an observatory with a, with a dome on top, with windows all around. Um, there are no metal parts holding it together. Uh, it was done all with, um, you know, joining up pieces of wood and glue, I think, but no, no metal because the Space Brothers said if you put metal in there, it'll mess up the uh, operation of it. There is metal, but it's copper wire, which is part of the... Uh, um, supposedly part of the mechanism but it's not a structural thing it's just it's uh, copper wire wound around the uh, uh, base of it um, around the ceiling you can see this big spiral of copper wire it's actually actually looks like an art installation it's beautiful um, and uh, yeah you're supposed to be able to just walk into it and sit there for a while and it would rejuvenate your cells if it was when it was running and and uh, uh, enable you to live longer so you could work out your karma in this life apparently that's that's what uh van tassel said the space brothers told him hmm. I, i've seen some of the early photos there was one and i wasn't able to get it for the book i think fex might have had it but there you at one time there was a big sign out in front of it calling it a time machine but yeah like greg was saying it was more a rejuvenation machine using, you know, electric uh, currents. And there's some science behind that. But uh, how it was supposed to work, uh, masses of people, this was one of the things presented, masses of people would line up and walk uh, through, uh, I think there was supposed to be an entrance and an exit, and people walk through it and get uh, rejuvenated. In order to you know have extended lifespans, yeah, it's there's a actually uh, this guy who's that Bob, uh, what's the guy's name? Not Bob Brown, Bob Smith. Oh, there's a dude out there who's who was kind of a oh yeah yeah Bob. Uh, <laughs> he's Bob. His name's Bob. Yes. He worked with him on the. Uh... <laughs> it's Bob. His name is Bob. His name is Bob, <laughs> Bob Dobbs. His name is Bob Dobbs. <laughs> and, I'll re. Uh, I'll remember it, but you got the Bob part, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he actually, if you go out to the museum, not the Integratron, but there's a, there's a uh, Morongo, I mean, there's a, uh, like a, 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 I think it's the Morongo Valley uh, Historical Society building. It's an old house out there that they've turned into a historical society with, you know, exhibits about the area. Um, heavy on the Integratron, because it's like probably three or four miles from the Integratron. But um, 
Bob will uh, show you his working model. I mean, he's got a little motor in it, and you can see how it's supposed to work, and how the there's a, a bunch of um, uh, static generator uh, parts, uh, including this ring that was supposed to turn uh, yeah. by its, by, uh, around it with these like um, uh, spokes. Poles, you know, spokes. Yeah, spokes. Probably six inch diameter spokes. That um, was sticking. Uh, trip an electric current as it spun spun around, and however that uh, worked, it put the, an electrical field into the integratron, and magical things would happen. One thing about the integratron, it has the most amazing acoustics. If you ever visit there, it's crazy. Yeah, um, for for example, um, musical groups rent it to record, and uh, the most famous of those I can think of is was Robert Plant. He, he rented it for a week to record something. Whoa, no way! Uh, yeah, he's all he's all into the Integratron and that whole area. I mean, it's 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 uh, it permeated hipster culture and or at least music culture and uh, and the hipster culture and all that. And uh, I know that Plant was out there, perhaps. Perhaps Camper Van Beethoven, or, or, or um, what's the what's the spinoff group from Camper Van Beethoven? Oh, um, uh, Cracker. Yeah, Cracker has I think done some stuff there. That actually, um, Pioneer Town real, near there has a um, a Cracker music fest every year, a real small one, but it's been going on for about ten years. Anyway, so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 famous amongst the hipsters. Uh, Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, when he was out there visiting, actually went to the Integratron, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, let, let me add that, yeah, there's a bunch of photos, too, of the Integratron and uh, the Giant Rock Convention. The collection a lot of these photos came from was a guy named Bob Beck, who was kind of a uh, renaissance man of the fringes. He uh, had his hands in all kinds of stuff. He was a kind of a crazy inventor, too, but uh, he went out for a number of years and... Uh, photographed a lot of the uh, UFO uh, convention, which is, you know, part of the genesis of this whole book. Yeah, the Interplanetary Spacecraft Conventions, I think they were called. If we're going to talk about the Space Brothers and where all this stuff comes from, I guess we should probably start with Adamski because he's the, the book's named after him. So, you know, he was um, he was Ashtar, if I'm correct, right? Was it was George Adamski at Ashtar? No. What no. was his? What was his? Uh, or, Orthon. Orthon. Okay. Well, they've all got these names like Ashtar, Orthon. Um, they all sound like um, synthetic fabrics. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess let's start with Adamski and go from there. Then. Well, that's you know where the contactee uh, movement uh, started. That's what a lot of people uh, point to. And uh, he really got involved. Uh, in, in, you know, you can look at a lot of the uh, early UFO contactees and kind of connect them to uh, the evolution of spiritualism, like uh, the contactees were kind of a uh, outgrowth of spiritualism, you know, all these uh, mediums that were channeling ascended masters and such, and, uh, you know, that's the contactee movement was certainly along a similar vein. Orthon, who uh, Adamski uh, met, the Venusian, uh, he was, you know, much like one of these ascended masters. You'd hear about uh, Madame Blavatsky and all these people involved in this uh, spiritualism movement and theosophy uh, had uh, channeled. 
and you know Orthon was uh, you know the, the message runs through a lot of the uh, contactees of uh, message of peace and love and they were here to warn us about uh, atomic uh, bomb testing and you know those type of uh, messages and uh, Orthon was the role model for that it, you know you look at uh, uh, Adamski's history, and it connects back to spiritualism, because in the 30s, he uh, kind of oversaw a group called the Royal Order of Tibet, uh, and they were had some kind of mansion in Laguna Beach. So he was, uh, you know, kind of would-be uh, guru of some measure there, and during that, those times, it said that he himself did, uh, was a trans-channeler. And so uh, he started coming into prominence prior to his uh, meeting with Orthon in like uh, 1950 or so. He moved out to a place called Palomar Gardens near Palomar Observatory and uh, out in San Diego, and he set up some telescopes there. And a lot of people suggest he set up the telescopes, try to kind of associate himself with uh, Palomar Observatory, and he started getting some followers who called him Professor Adamski. So he kind of got a little bit of a cult following there. And during that period, he started photographing flying saucers, UFOs. And he uh, began to get, have a group of a few people around him. And in 1952, one of the people associated with him, uh, George Hunts Williamson, who was a uh, trans-channeler, uh, had a vision that, that uh, Damsky would meet an E.T. out in the desert at a certain spot. So they went out there, and uh, it happened. At least it didn't happen for the whole group. Uh, Damsky with like uh, six other people went out there, and at one point Adamski uh, grabbed his telescope and went about a half mile down the road, and that's where he met Orthon, came down in a scout ship, the classic uh, Bellcraft, if you've seen the photos of uh, Adamski. And uh, once again, the classical early model of uh, Space Brother. He was from Venus, Orthon, in a tight ski suit type affair, had long blonde hair, you know, your Aryan-looking uh, spaceman. And he also had some interesting boots on which uh, maybe Greg can talk about that in a little while if he wants to. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I, well, it will be, they no, get your mind out of the Of the whole encounter, the most interesting thing is the boots that he wore. <laughs> well, they left a message. But uh, the conversation was uh, primarily telepathy, but uh, the one, two words that uh, Orthon did say to Adamski was, boom, boom. And it was a warning about atomic testing. Anyway, that meeting lasted however long, half hour or so. Then Orthon uh, took off, and that uh, launched uh, Adamski's career as kind of the uh, father of uh, the UFO contactees. And he started traveling around the country, tra uh, traveled overseas, uh, became known as the ambassador of the uh, Space Brothers. And he was kind of a... Uh, key contact a lot of the uh contactees would like i said a, a group uh started uh gathering around him among them george hunt williamson and uh several others uh 
a crazy character named uh, Carl Hunrath, who we had to talk, <laughs> ought to talk <laughs> about. Well. Okay, so tell me about the boots then, since you brought them up. Oh, God, you know, while, while Adam was talking, I actually ran to get my book by um, actually a uh, George Hunter. Are these like Gene Simmons books with spikes coming out of them and fangs? That's the, I mean, I, <laughs> the the outfits that are described by all these contactees, they're always like, they're, they're always like uh, domed helmets, um, you know, Lycra jumpsuits. Um, you know, they, they mirror what you see in the movies of the time, you know, it's, was that, was that like a, a cause and effect kind of thing? Like, did the people reporting the sightings first or was it the, you see the people in the movies and then the people that were claiming the sightings were basing that off of the movies? Is, is that how that worked or, you know, is, how did that, how did the two go hand in hand? Well, I don't agree. I think, I think some of it, they were being influenced, uh, by the, uh, by movies, uh, for sure, the day the Earth stood still mm-hmm. seemed to be like uh, a model for a lot of these encounters. The aliens coming to warn about, uh, you know, the uh, our warlike ways and uh, that we're going to destroy the planet unless we uh, got our shit together. Well, they failed, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, the boots. Okay, what happened was. Um, Apparently, according to Adamski and Williamson, and they both filled, and then the Williamson's wife and Adamski's like secretary, Lucy McGinnis, they filled out an affidavit later saying, yes, this really happened. I really saw this going on, which doesn't count for crap, actually, but at least they did that. Um, what uh, Williamson said, and Adamski too, but Williamson wrote on it extensively, was that uh, when they looked at the uh, the footprints, which is kind of weird because when uh, I've talked to people and go out there, there's no place to leave a footprint. It's just like gravel. Um, yeah. That I have yet to go out there yet. I've, I've got um, probably two, three people that actually have, have been there and, and seen the spot or at least near the spot. Um, anyway, uh, what Williamson and Damsky both said was that Orthon left footprints there in his boot from his boots. Um, and the boots made foot the the, what was on the bottom of the boots apparently was a message (laughs) in in an alien language that um i don't know if adamski ever talked about it i'm sure he did but um williamson wrote about it uh he called the language the solex mall s-o-l-e-x-m-a-l um i actually grabbed his book just now while adam was talking because i was like i know he talked about it um, the book is called Other Tongues, Other Flesh from 1953. Um, let's see. I'll, I'll read some of it, uh, if, if you don't mind. Well, our, space friend, our space friends placed his tracks in the desert sand. Uh, we might say how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings glad, glad, blah, glad tidings. Uh, the Lemurian interpretation of the tracks on the desert um, uh, uh is uh, oh is is God? He writes so strangely. The Lemurian interpretation of the tracks on the desert is given here by itself, since placing it within the preceding material would have only confused both interpretations. It's confusing enough. The left footprint stands for the old continent of Mu, Mu, Empire of the Sun, motherland of the human race on planet Earth, lies beneath the waters. Um, That's an Atlantis, it go- dude. Yeah, exactly. It goes through the the goes through an, a very uh, 
complicated um, explication of what was in the footprints. The right footprint stands for the new continent of Mew, the new heavens and the new earth, the new golden dawn or age, the Aquarian or air age. The new Mew will emerge from the Pacific Ocean. So... All right, so anyway. you get off of, you get all this off of footprints, huh? <laughs> well, it, Williamson did anyway. There's there's pictures actually, and then he took um, the important part of it is he he uh, took uh, plaster cast plaster of Paris cast of them, big Bigfoot researcher like, so you yeah. could uh, see see what it said. Uh, Adamski, there's pictures of him actually standing next to um, the plaster cast. Um, I don't know who has them now or what happened to them. Maybe the Adamski Foundation has them. Do you know, Adam? The plaster casters have them. No, yeah. <laughs> Do you know who the plaster casters are, uh, Rogan? I, I, I go immediately to the Kiss song, Plaster Caster, but no, I don't. I have no idea. Yeah, well, that's that's about. Okay. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> about the people that. who make plaster casts of penises, correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll go there's there. Some, don't worry. We'll make it quick. <laughs> there's, there's some groupies. No, we, don't, we went there. Yeah, or we're done. You can uh, look, it, look it up on the internet. We should uh, talk about Carl Hunrath because that's a story too uh, cool to pass up because he was connected to Adamski, if you don't mind. No, go right ahead. Joe, are you still with us? And there's alien symbols of that, too. Oh, yeah. I, I almost said, why is it every show I end up on we eventually get the penises somehow? It just seems to be following me around when I come on this show. But yes, I'm <laughs> listening. It's funny how around. Kiss keeps coming up, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead, Adam. So this dude, uh, I'm talking about how uh, Adamski started getting followers. People heard about him there at Palomar Gardens where he had a little... Uh, it's basically a hamburger uh, stand he ran there and uh, set you know a little uh, compound where people could hear him wax eloquent about the uh, UFOs and anyway one guy who heard about uh, Adamski and saw him out was this uh, character named Carl Hunrath who was in uh, Racine, Wisconsin and he had created a crazy device called Bosco. That's what he called it, actually called it. It was uh, Bosco. And uh, he came out to uh, California to tell Adamski about it. Uh, it was a, a mysterious black box that he claimed could uh, duplicate the, the, like, the magnetic field of UFOs and basically summon them or call UFOs uh, forth and uh, make them land, land, you know. And it also, according to Hunrath, could... Uh, provide enough free energy to uh, power uh, Palomar Gardens. So uh, Adamski was fascinated by this, and uh, so Hunrath started uh, hanging out there. And he was uh, also involved with that group, uh, George Hunt Williamson, who uh, Greg was talking about, but uh, and a few and a few others that had gathered around there. And uh, so anyway, at one point. Uh, Apparently, this Hunrath guy was kind of a uh, bit of a hothead head at times. Uh, and uh, they were one night they were hanging out, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, it could call down UFOs and it could even uh, affect. Uh, like uh, military aircraft and make them crash as well. 
And uh, some of Adansky's uh, followers, his secretary, heard that and goes, what the hell? What kind of crazy machine does this guy have? She called, alerted the uh, feds, the FBI and Air Force, and uh, they came out to uh, question Adamski about it. Apparently, by that time, Adamski and Hunrath had had a falling out, and Adamski told him to get out of there. He didn't want him crashing any airplanes. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, at that point, you know, they they had that falling out, and uh, Adamski hooked up with uh, William, George Hunt Williamson, or excuse me, uh, Hunrath uh uh, hooked up with uh, George Hunt Williamson, and they went out to Williamson's place. Williamson was in uh, Prescott, Arizona during this period, and he was doing a lot of uh, Prescott, doing a lot of ex- experiments, contacting the ETs with shortwave radios, and also using a type of Ouija uh, uh, board type uh, mechanism mechanism to contact the ETs and there there were some crazy stories that they were also experimenting with uh, hallucinogenics uh, peyote and that uh, guaranteed to make you have a UFO sighting mm -hmm. and even to the point where uh, uh, Hunrath and a buddy of his name uh, Wilkinson Wilbur Wilkinson yep they uh, were either started to believe they were ETs or they were channeling these specific uh, ETs and they were recording all these different uh, messages. And they had uh, returned to L.A. and uh, apparently uh, Wilkerson had left his wife and him him and uh, Hunrath were uh, living in a boarding house. And uh, they mysteriously disappeared, and when they uh, went to check on where these guys had lived later on, they found all these messages that were hung up on butcher paper on the wall. M- messages probably similar to what uh, Williamson decoded in those uh, footprints. The, the messages were from... Uh, the planet Mazer, which was is also Mars apparently, but anyway, these two uh, <laughs> guys uh, disappeared, and the last they heard, they were going to meet a uh, flying saucer, a landed flying saucer out in the desert. They rented an airplane from the Gardenia Airport, which is no longer in existence, and uh, that's the last they were seen. I don't know if they hooked up with the flying saucer somewhere and they were transported to another planet, but uh, the plane itself was never found. A lot of people assumed it might have crashed in the uh, out in the high desert there somewhere. Other accounts uh, suggested that the FBI got involved in looking for the two men and that they might have uh, hightailed it to Mexico for some reason. Anyway, it's one of the great uh, mysteries of that uh, early uh, contactee period. These two guys uh, disappeared and were never seen again. So their plane's never been found to this day or anything? No. No, I, I made an effort to uh, start scouring records for it, but I, I didn't get very far with that um, just to figure out because he's like, the plane was never seen again. It's like, well, that's the legend, but it it might actually be uh, useful to go through um, records of uh, plane crashes uh, through the years and yeah. see um, if something like that was ever found. But the thing is, you, you know, all we have right now, all, as far as I got was I knew the day they took off, 
and I, I popped, you know, I'm sure they were missing that same day because the fuel wouldn't last for more than, you know, maybe three or four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know approximately the airport they took off. I think it was the Gardena airport, but yeah. I did some research and there's like, there were like two or three airports sort of in that area at the time. And only one of them actually rented aircraft. I actually found that out too. So I'm, I got it narrowed down to which airport they took off from probably. Um, but that's as far the trail went cold after that. I'm, I'm going to have to start bothering more people again to try and get that information. But it was interesting to me because of, because of, uh, my, um, my, uh, interest in flying and my pilot's license and all that. So wouldn't we there be flight logs or anything a, uh, though? Like, like flight numbers or any of that no, kind of stuff no, that would be no, logged? No. This no? was the early days. This was like just a remote little strip, I think, uh, hmm. where they took off from and there might've been some, uh, uh, very uh, basic records they might have kept back, you know, during that period. There's you don't, a we you don't were, have to file a flight plan for visual flight uh, rules. You don't. And back then, yeah, as Adam said, it would have been even more primitive. And what un- year? What year was that? Did it happen? I have the newspaper uh, clipping here, and uh, let's see when was this? It was around. Re- wasn't that 52 53 oh yeah see we have this assumption that everything with planes is highly tracked and everybody knows what's going on when (laughs) no they don't no 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 no, their planes what was the one that the the last three four years that went completely missing that they still don't know where the hell it actually landed 1953 november 18th 1953 was uh the the news report yeah which one forget it and uh, we reproduced the newspaper clipping here, and the title was, and this was in the Los Angeles Mirror, the title was, Wife Fears Hubby in Flying Saucer Kidnap. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'd actually go down to the L.A. Public Library in the midst of a bunch of other uh, uh, research for this, and I, I, we had a kind of a date. I think we got the date from uh, Tim Beckley, um, or at least um, – he had reproduced it in one of his books, and so I went down and tried to get a little better copy of it. So, which I, they only had on microfilm, so I took an image off the microfilm, which is what's reproduced in in uh, A. S. Radamski. Oh, I forgot forgot to share the great line from this. Uh, the, the whole reason. Oh for yeah, telling it's, this, it's, it's my <laughs> telling next, this story. It's my next T-shirt. <laughs> I'll read from the book itself. Uh, Part of Adamski's concern about uh, Hunrath and Bosco, you know, was that if it could bring down UFOs, then it could most likely mess with military aircraft, to which Hunrath replied, Who cares? We want the saucers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Let's put this in. Let's put this in, in proportion here. We have the Space Brothers that are coming down, trying to deliver messages of peace and anti-destruction, and here we have a guy that's creating a device, a device to crash the flying saucers into the planet, which is called Bosco. Yeah, typical human behavior. <laughs> we're here to help you. Great, we're going to crash your. We're going to crash your crafts. <laughs> is this any crazier than the UFO field now? No, no, no not at all. Not at all. No. No, it, that it, it's less crazy almost. It, it's transitioned very well. Um, <laughs> all right, well, let's move on because um, I got a feeling that we could we could talk about this for a long time. We're actually coming yeah. up on it. We're going to be coming up on the hour mark here. You guys got you guys got longer to stay, or are you cool with hanging around for a while, Joe? Are you good yeah, for hanging out? Right. 
Okay. I'm, uh, yes, I just uh, successfully found that somebody does have the band name, the Space Brothers, because I'm sitting here going, if nobody has claimed that yet, <laughs> then I will register it somewhere because that's just too good. But beaten to it. So let's move on to Sun Ra, which is probably one of the most unique individuals that I've seen come out of this. He was pre-George Clinton um, Space Brothers before there was George Clinton. So um, Sun Ra is a African-American gentleman dressed in Egyptian attire. Um, I believe he made a movie called Space is the Place, and he was also a jazz musician. Um, pretty much walked around in Egyptian attire all of the time, correct? Mm-hmm. So after a certain point in his life, uh, Adam wrote that, that, that entry. Take us to Sun Ra. You've covered about all the highlights. Uh. <laughs> yeah, forget it. Next. This was actually one of the uh, entries that was kind of an afterthought, you know, when we're putting this uh, book together. And I knew uh, Sun Ra was into spacey stuff, you know, and I got this thought, uh, let me look into Sun Ra a little more, because I wasn't sure, actually, that he was a contactee, but indeed he was, or so he claimed. Um, he claimed in 37 that, uh, I can read the little passage, uh, here in 1937, a bright light materialized before him. And he quote, he said, my whole body changed into something else. I could see through myself and I went up. I wasn't in human form. I landed on a planet that I identified as Saturn. They teleported me, and I was down on a stage with them. I guess he was performing. They wanted to talk with me. They had one little – this is good. They had one little antenna on each ear, a little antenna over each eye. They talked to me. They told me to stop attending college because there was going to be great trouble in schools. The world was going into complete chaos. I would speak through music, and the world would listen. That's what they told me. That, so that was uh, Sun Ra's uh, story about he, uh, you know, was set on this, his life's course. I'm not sure if I covered it in the uh, entry here, but um, he was a uh, conscious, conscientious objector during uh, World War II. And as I recall, he ended up in a booby hatch uh, loony bin somewhere. somewhere. That might have attributed to his uh, visions, but uh, and th there are some discrepancies. He claimed 1937 he had this uh, vision, but other musicians who worked with him said they didn't really hear this story till like the mid 50s. You know, after the contactee scene had uh, started. So, you know, there might have been some embellishments on when he when and if he actually had that experience. But uh, in the 50s, he started an ensemble called the uh, Space Trio, and that's when they started wearing a lot of that funky uh, futuristic attire that was a combination of like this Egyptian meets science fiction and these big elaborate headdresses. And uh, so this first band was Space Trio, then in the 60s, he started the orchestra, which was like a big happening. Yeah, kind of like George uh, Clinton and what was his group? The uh, Funkadelic. Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah. So you had m musicians and dancers and this, these stage effects, he, uh, which are pretty ground 
breaking called the Outer Space Visual, Visual Communicator that uh, projected all kinds <laughs> of wild uh, stuff and fire eaters on stage. And I'm kind of jumping around <laughs> looking at the uh, passage from the uh, book here. If you're out there listening, go on YouTube and just YouTube this guy. You've got to see him to believe him. Oh, there's tons of music out there, and I'm not as hip uh, to his music. Maybe uh, Greg uh, is more than I am, but uh, he was um, also one of the uh, first people to use a uh, Moog synthesizer. And in the 70s, he was... uh, became an artist and resident at uh, UC Berkeley and taught a course, which would have been great to attend called the black man in the cosmos. And you also mentioned, uh, yeah, there's a film, which as I note in the uh, book, you can still find on YouTube, at least, uh, at the writing of the book, it's called, as you said, uh, space is the place. So quite, quite a character. Greg, do you have anything, uh, to add, yes. I know. I, yeah, I went and for. grabbed the excluded middle magazine number three from 1993, mm-hmm. and our friend Peter Stencil wrote an article about, uh, actually not an article, a uh, uh, obituary for Sun Ra because he died while we were doing the magazine on April 30th, 1993. Um, uh, and Peter points out uh, Sun Ra was decidedly not pursuing the fast track to capitalistic glory. His communal life with his musicians and his tireless rehearsing and recording express a fierce dedication to his muse, um, not popular recognition. When his orchestra's five and dime space costumes were the height of uncool, he made no attempt to ditch them to appease the fashion conscious, trendy jazz scene. His live shows included space ritual, dancing, chanting, and theater, all in flashy outer space clothing. Um, Here's a quote from Sun Ra, actually, um, from 1988. I used to be a man, but I got promoted by the creator to be an angel. And then I got promoted to be an archangel. So then I'm I'm here to help the planet. I went out of space several times. He didn't call it outer space. When he went away from the planet, he called it out of space. Um, I met other kind of beings. They taught me other kinds of things about the future. And I feel that I'm trying to convey that message to people so that they can go to outer space. I've been. They could go too, but they have to be pure in heart. <laughs> so that's the, there's a little bit more on Sun Ra. That's where the Prodigy got that song from. Now that I think about it, they probably sampled it from this guy. There's a song that Prodigy did called uh, something like "Take Me to Outer Space." You never, they never say yeah. outer space in it, and that's probably where they got it from. Now that I hear this, I, I'm sure it yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah, and there's the communal aspect too. I don't think I uh, mentioned that either in the entry that. Uh, he had started this communal scene with these musicians, and this was, uh, boy, pre-hippies, like in the 50s, uh, as I recall. <laughs> this is off the top of my head, but he was in maybe Harlem, New York, where he started this scene with these musicians, and they really got deep into whatever this uh, type of uh, music was, just living and breathing it uh, day by day, you know, spending a lot of uh, time, uh, hours and hours, just uh, perfecting uh, the craft and uh, practicing together as musicians. Music is all a part of another tomorrow, another kind of language, speaking things of nature, naturalness, the way it should be, speaking things of blackness, about the void. The endless void, the bottomless pit surrounding you. 
actually run across Sumra a couple of different places. Uh, one thing that was recent was when they were talking about all the um, the Afrofuturism stuff. He is a big factor in that whole uh, in that whole concept. He comes up a number of times. This idea of this futuristic science fiction version of black culture, and his name pops uh-huh. up a lot in that. Um, mm. And then when they were talking about, because I didn't read the degree that this is all the different stuff about it but they were he, i the thing about him believing that he had visited another planet that type of concept comes up a lot within creative people the other big example because when i was listening to you talk about him i'm thinking instantly of philip k dick and the whole thing where he was zapped by the pink ray and suddenly mm-hmm. that was kind of like his transformative moment where he was like okay wait a minute i just got all this information now i have to communicate it it's interesting that there are people like this who start to there's some kind of you know whatever it is that transformative moment and suddenly there is a message they need to convey. So this is kind of an interesting through yeah. line that you find with certain creative individuals, this idea that there's this, and it does tend to intersect with space and, you know, uh, visiting other worlds or getting messages from, you know, off planet, uh, intelligences. So there is this interesting kind of recurring theme among certain people that kind of pushes them to the outside. And they're like, Oh, okay. I'm seeing things completely radically different. Not, Small stuff, but completely realigned worldview. So I've actually yeah. run across some raw before. It's the Space Brothers burning bush. Basically, yeah. It's it's you know it's it's yeah it's the Space Brothers burning and bush for the most they're, part. They're they're compelled. There's a compulsion to create their art that's been inspired by their visionary experience to yeah. a very extreme ends sometimes. I mean, the amount of music, and I do need to spend some time listening to some of Ra, uh, Sun Ra's stuff. I mean, he, <laughs> he produced a lot of music, just like I was a b- big Philip K. Dickhead uh, back in the day. <laughs> That's what we called ourselves, Dickheads. Well, had, you're a most good his... company, sir. <laughs> <laughs> The amount of stuff he produced, God, there were some years there in the 50s and 60s where he wrote five or six novels a year. And that's back in the days when it uh, science fiction was kind of the uh, literary gutter. But he <laughs> well, he was he, he pretty much getting... mathed out and he was paid by the word. So every, yeah. for the, every word that he wrote, so he would just get whacked out of his mind and methamphetamines and just start writing. I was actually going to mm-hmm. ask you down the road at some point about doing a show about Philip K. Dick. I didn't know how much you were versed in him or not. I figured he was somebody that you'd be, uh, he'd be somebody right up your, right up your path. Well, but, I, um, I am pretty well, uh, first, I mean, I've read, uh, <laughs> uh, well, this is getting he he's a he he would be considered a contactee to a certain extent, but I uh, yeah I was one of uh, I could I guess call myself an early dickhead before um, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep uh, Blade Runner came around prior to that I discovered him in the eighties and back then uh, he, you what know, a hipster. But, You'd fi- yeah, you'd find all his stuff in used bookstores before <laughs> he got uh, rediscovered it again. So, yeah, I was uh, very much into Dick. Uh, a few years back, I- <laughs> that doesn't sound this I'm just leaving that one alone right where it lays. Yeah. <laughs> he loves uh, the Dick. <laughs> well, I, I uh, put a uh, photo on the web a few years ago, which was... Uh, a picture of my uh, 
dick collection, you know, with the <laughs> joke, whatever. Here's my uh, 52 inches of dick. Can you match this? And other people, a few other people who had Philip K. Dick collections started uh, posting to the web, them to the webs, kind of, you know. Anyway. <laughs> what was the book that he, uh, Joe, what was the story he wrote because of the pink laser? Was that, um, I believe Vallis. Ubik is supposed to be, is it Ubik or was it Vallis? I can't remember. I think it was now. Vallis. Was it Vallis? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what he, that's what he yeah. called the, the, the pink, or at least the source yeah. of the pink laser. Vast active living intelligence system. Well, mm-hmm. there's kind yeah, of, I always mix tr- those there, two up. There's kind of a uh, trilogy there. There's mm-hmm. Vallis, and there's also a, one called Radio Free Album Youth that I like even better that it's kind of that Vallis uh, story that wasn't uh, published till after he uh, died. And also the uh, transmigration of Timothy Archer gets into the whole pink beam thing. And, of course, you also have to seek out uh, the R. Crumb uh, comic book uh, uh, oh yeah that's story. a great one yeah. that's easy to yeah. find on the web for anybody who wants to see it you can find it in two seconds an album was true i be, forget about was, i forget about the web yeah <laughs> the album was semi-autobiographical right i mean wasn't that partially what he said happened to i some of his books bleed together i have to admit because i i've read them so many times over and over and i don't i can sometimes not yeah. separate some of them he, uh, well, it's like a lot of those are semi-autobiographical. He, uh, yeah, I, I really like Radio Free uh, Album Youth. Uh, I think you need to read all those together if you really want to get into that whole uh, Vallis Pink Beam thing. Yeah, definitely read uh, Vallis and Radio Free Album Youth. That was, he was having a toothache or something like that? And then he had to have some drugs sent over to him, and he opened up the door, and he makes reference. He always makes references to boobs. He was a big boob guy. And he said there was some nurse, and he was talking about her boobs, and then he got hit with the pink laser, and all this information was downloaded yeah. into him. So I guess that would fall into the contactee category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the crumb, the crumb cartoon actually is a fantastic telling of it because oh, it's, true. It's, yeah. it's illustrated so well of what basically he was saying. So, yeah, go find that. Uh, and... Crumb was into big boobs, too. So it all kind of flows together. It's all just a magical, you know, big. uh, If you were into dick before anybody else was. Sorry, I've been waiting to make that joke for like five minutes. Then you'll love that cartoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. I had to check it out. I've never been able to get past like page 80 something of Vallis. That's as far as I've gone with Philip K. Dick. My recommendation, though. I always tell people, don't read Vallis first. You'll be going, what the hell is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, no. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, the, the, some of the ones that are his big books, I tell people, don't start with those because they could, like Man in the High Castle, which I, is a great book, but that is not one of the ones I tell people to start with. I'm like, no, you have to start in different spots because you have to, you have to, you almost have to know if you're going to be into that stuff before you can get into the shit that just doesn't care if you're along for the ride at all. Uh, it's a very specific type of atmosphere and, and tone. It's very tough. It, it, it is it is a very paranoid and bleak type of work well, to get into. It's, it's very addictive, though, once you figure out what he's uh, doing, you know. Uh, I don't know where to start. If you get start. into it, then you will read it all. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It's one of those yeah. deals that if you, if you can get into it, you can sort of understand what it's doing and you're not – and some people are overpowered by it, and I don't blame them. It is there can be some really, really heavy shit in there where you have to 
the whole idea is, is this real or is, is this not real in a lot of that work? And that can be tiring, frankly, to people to read because you are trying to figure out what is going on. That's the beauty of it, but it's not easy. This is not stuff you just walk into, go, oh yeah, I'll breeze through this in a couple of days. No, no. This shit is going to punch you in the face a couple of times. That's great. Challenging <laughs> agree, material yeah. is excellent, but be aware that's what it is. I'd probably have somebody start with either uh, do androids dream of electric sheep or maybe Ubik. Yeah. Oh, really? Ubik's pretty intense. That's oh, a, it's nuts. I, I would go with the short story stuff first. You know, um, that was going to be my other saying yeah. was going to some of the short stories might be a better place to start because you don't get lost in it. As yeah, much. you can process you know, you'll, it faster. You'll understand quickly whether you can do it. You're yeah. kind of fed spoonfuls of it and it kind of builds you up to that really weird <laughs> realm of stuff rather than just throwing you right in the middle of the pool and go, OK, here, interpret this. Hey, why don't the we uh, Runner, not the Blade Runner, the Total Recall story is what I usually sucker people in with. I'm like, oh, yeah, you like Blade Runner or uh, the uh, Total Recall, right? The Schwarzenegger movie. Here, read this. It's the same shit. I was aboard a flying saucer in the Nevada desert on 11 different occasions. I was taken into this monstrous saucer by one of the men and uh, confronted with a lady captain, beautiful complexion, beautiful appearing woman, and a peaceful people. They mean no harm to us. They come down here to investigate what's going on on Earth, and uh, they certainly convinced me that they're peaceful, and they come from another planet they call Clarion. They told me there was life on Mars and that there were life on other planets as well, and all planets except Earth had interplanetary means of travel. So concludes part one of our interview with Greg Bishop and Adam Gorightly. Basically, me and Joe a couple of years ago were either doing a show together or playing a video game together, and he was talking about how um, I was like, there's, there's certain shows that we don't like to do, like the silly ones and stuff. And he was like, no, those are the ones that I like. The more flipped out, the better. So me scrambling to try to find another co-host real quick. I, I had bugged uh, Cutchin. Cutchin was busy. Uh, Patrick from Patrick and Dennis on Almost Educational. He was busy. And then like in the last half hour or something like that, Joe from Ozone's like, yeah, I can come on. I'll, I'll co-host with you if you need it in a pinch. And I'm like, all right, well, you know absolutely nothing about the content or anything like that. So uh, here's a copy of the book. you got 20 minutes to look through it. And, uh, you know, whatever. Let's go. I really I just get this sense, this feeling that he was really out of his element. And I'm like sending him messages on Twitter saying, well, you like the far out stuff. Is this far out for you? But, um, yeah, he really didn't say too much. But then again, I kind of like ambushed. Like I was like, I need you right now. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. And that's what happened. So Poor Joe. Um, yeah, you know, it's he was just I don't know. <laughs> I think you know what it was is I bugged him later. I'm like, did you have a good time with you? And he was he's kind of like you. He was just sitting there listening, but I kind of expected because he really didn't know anything about the content or whatever. And then as far as the interview went, we went off in a lot of directions that I really wasn't expecting to go. Like the thing about uh, you haven't heard it yet, of course, because you asked over to listen to it. But we go into this thing at the end of the show as if Philip K. Dick was actually a contactee or not, because there's a, a point where Philip K. Dick talks about getting hit in the head by a pink laser beam and all this information is downloaded into him and blah 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 and that's where he wrote the book Valis from and uh, you know there was a couple of things that we talked about in there that weren't actually in the book and I think in the next segment uh, when we do when I drop part two next week it works the same way so having said all of that um, you were sent some MRE pizzas correct absolutely from Mama Duffy 
And are are you eating them now, or are you going to I eat them? I didn't. I will. I'm going to open one of them up. So wait a minute. Aren't you, you're just supposed to eat. You're not even trying to warm them up. You're just going to eat them out of the package the way they yeah. are. Dude, I hardly ever warmed up the uh, MREs when I ate them before. Okay, now isn't there some kind of a heater element in the package where? No, when you, that's uh, when you get the whole MRE. This, these are just, these are just the pizzas. Mm-hmm. They're from Bridgeford. They're made by, they're made for the government. Shelf stable pepperoni pizza with cheese and sauce. Okay. Jesus Christ, they're two hundred eighty calories for one of them. Well, yeah. But Holy fuck! Eight hundred fifty milligrams of sodium. Well, they gotta preserve it somehow. The high calorie intake, I can see, because uh, you're gonna be out in the field. You're you're gonna be marching around and doing stuff. They have to have high calories going into to keep you, you know, keep you active. They can't be feeding you something with not a lot of calories. True. Upside, there's no trans fat. Mm. Hold on. Get that nice. Oh my god! It smells like beefaroni. Nick Sykes wrote an email in about this actually, so we're gonna I'm gonna oh, read a little bit of that. Here's the do not eat, please discard. There's the filings. Mm-hmm. Metal shavings. Oh wow, it's a little pizza. Alright. Oh, it smells horrible. <laughs> it smells horrible. <laughs> Dude, you have no idea. It smells abysmal. Oh, God, please don't let the freaking steak and cheese I ate come up. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> it's that bad? <laughs> oh, it tastes pretty good. Once you get past the horrible smell. Oh, yeah, dude, I could rock these all day long. Now, what would you liken it to? Would you liken it to like a Geno's pizza or a Tatino's or um, a gas station pizza? It tastes uh, like a bagel bite. A big, okay, yeah. Chewy, um, it has surprisingly good mouthfeel. <laughs> it tastes—it's like a bagel. <laughs> it's legitimately like a bagel bite. Okay, is the cheese melted on it, or is it just kind of tossed no, on there? It's just kind of laid on it, but I mean, it's passable. No, dude, this thing's pretty solid. So, if you were to warm it up, would it be better? Or, um, yeah, I would probably improve it. It couldn't make it worse. And how many of these did you get? Five. I guess you should save the other four for the zombie apocalypse. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, Nicholas Sykes. Hey, guys. Just a quick one. I had a mate who was in the SAS back in the 80s and 90s. They've been talking. They've been taking cold pizza wrapped in cling film, which I assume what we call in America is saran wrap. Mm-hmm. Uh, cling film as combat rations for years. He was doing that when he was in the Falklands conflict. He used to say that the local papers would always knew when they were being deployed as the pizzeria would call them as soon as they got an order from the barracks. Didn't need ridiculous amount of freeloading nutritional consultants for that, did they? Sounds like jobs for the boys to me. Mm. As for real pizza, I don't think you guys would like pizza if you had it from it had one from Italy. First one. No, Italian pizza would be awesome. First one I had in Italy was a was in Pisa, and I thought it was I thought, what the hell is this? The bases are really thin. That sounds fine. This uh, mm-hmm. a smear of marinara sauce. Yeah, I can, mm-hmm. I can rock that as well. Melted yep. medallions of buffalo mozzarella. That yep. I would be curious about. I don't know. Buffalo mozzarella is delicious. And topped with fresh basil leaves. I do occasionally yep. make pizzas this way. Pepperoni and other deli meats aren't normally put on. That's how to cater for No, that's a pizza marguerite. Yeah, what he you, just described is a pizza marguerite. And if you ask for pepperoni over there, you get peppers on your pizza. 
Uh, <laughs> also, apologies, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he's supposed to send us some beer or something like that. And I'm like, nah, don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, Nick, don't don't if, don't if worry about sending us anything. You're on the other side of the world, and it costs expensive as hell. Not that we don't appreciate when no, we you get sound stuff. you independently wealthy. By all means, send everything you want. Absolutely. <laughs> I know I owe you some beers, finance for, uh, over a bit of Rocky, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, 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 does Lobo accept sweets? Yes, he does. And does always. he smoke? No, he oh does my God, not always. smoke. Oh, my God, always. I don't know. Do you still smoke cigars? Uh, no, I stopped. Okay, a while I didn't ago. think so. Yeah, Lobo's this. Well, we're both actually sweets guys. Um, I'm more, mm. uh, if possible, to get beer from overseas, but mailing beer overseas is going to be a bitch. You don't want to mail. You don't want to mail glass. Like, yeah, I'm not saying that I've mailed alcohol out to people, but if you never I mailed were, it to me when I asked you, jerk, alcohol. Yeah, I asked you, can't you for drink. some of that. Oh, that's meat. right. You want some for your wife? That's right. Yeah. I don't know if she's going to like it. Your wife doesn't like sweet wines. She might like this. Yes, she does. That's all she drinks is sweet wine. Yeah, but these last couple I made are really sweet. Like the watermelon. She drinks Moscato. Uh, you know, Moscato's I'm still just going to I'm going to try like hell to get out there this year in some way or another. Dude, this pizza is good. I actually like it. I think there may be heroin in it. There may be heroin in the uh, MRE pizzas. Really? <laughs> okay. I don't know. One of them's addictive. What did the uh, Nazis used to put in meth? That's so the Nazis were meth. No, dude, there's definitely not meth in this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all right, that's it. Your microphone is not working, folks. If you realized how many times we tried to record uh. this earlier, I actually destroyed my other keyboard. I had to go buy another one today. Um, destroyed so, keyboard. Yeah, I I got up and and Hulk smashed it into the uh, closet door. So I had to go to Best Buy and get another keyboard today. Um, I thought we were past that. <sighs> Dude, when you smash your own shit, you have to buy new stuff. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's not good. That's yeah, not a well, good look. Yeah. All right. Whatever. Yeah, we're good now. <laughs> All's good. All's well. So it's okay. I didn't. I didn't spend a lot on it. We're good. It's a. Uh, it's essentially the same one that I got last time. So we're we're all good now. It's recorded. So, now so. You can smash that one. What's that? Now you can smash that one. Hmm. Um, I gotta send you a copy of uh, I can't say the person's name of of a person's of a person's new book that we got. I don't want to okay. ruin it. The person in question heard them on the out heard themselves on the outtakes, <coughs> and uh, oh, is it? Is it who I'm thinking it is. It, it may be. Um, I will give you a hint. It has to do with Bigfoot porn. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, really? They sent you a, a book. They sent me a PDF of a book, oh, okay. which I have all to right, get cool. to you. And it All is right. the first that this person has gone back into the realm of the paranormal in quite some time. I know we're being right. completely vague here, folks. I'm sorry. We're You'll having a show meeting on the air. So, uh, yeah, that. But, um, yeah, Tyler also, who was uh, listened to the show outtakes and sent us a message on Twitter saying Happy New Year. I'm like, oh, so you listen to the outtakes, huh? Because it was the, uh, you probably, did you listen to the outtakes show again to go back and forth? Yeah, and I made the wife listen to it, too. Yeah, um, the whole Shaft thing. Uh, Shaft! And uh, Tyler, at the beginning of the episode, um, I forget. There was so much just shit that we did that I completely had forgotten about. There was actually some stuff that I didn't put on there because I just felt it was getting a little bit long. But yeah. uh, Dude, you could have made it five hours long and there's people that would have listened to it. Yeah. Aaron. I know. Aaron. So, yeah, this episode's done. Next week will be the part two. I'm going to record a real short 
opening and closing for that one. Uh, I don't want to go back and do a whole other thing all over again. So, uh, yeah, next one's about eh, about the same amount as long. And, uh, yeah, that'll be it. That's That'll be it. And then we'll be back again the following week. And hopefully we won't have any more computers exploding and keyboards breaking oh. and shit like that. So <clears throat> enjoy your chewy MRE pizza. Good. Uh, yeah, it's good. Thanks, Mama Duff. I should close the show out with the B-52s. Do it. That's what I do. I'm going to close the show with the B-52s, Planet Claire. Oh, by the way, there, there's probably going to be some outtakes at the end of this. All right, that's it. This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. This is Lobo from Connecticut. I was supposed to give a plug a few shows ago. If you get a chance, go out and check out minicompletetank.com. They're awesome. Just go there. Is it a podcast? No, it's an actual product. It's a tiny little self-contained aquarium system. Oh, yeah. I have three of them now. Are we, so we're taking unpaid sponsorships from outside people now? Sounds like a shout-out? Yeah. yeah. All right, whatever. That's cool. I don't care. <laughs> Peace, folks. Bye!
UFOs are, you know, all over the place apparently. And they just, I just saw the Frazier episode where the politician makes a joke about believing in aliens will let him run and win in California, which is accurate. That what was the name? That who? Childers. Um, no, the other one. What was the other name? Oh, uh, Lee Crandall. He was the first oh, that person. Was, to... That was the guy who was on with Jackie Gleason on the Honeymooners, right? Sorry, that was a long setup no, to no. a terrible <laughs> joke. <laughs> Lee Crandall was the first person to get a ride to Venus. No, I know. Uh, I was playing off the Cramden joke. 